in the fragile substance of my soul And I have filled this void with things unreal And all the while my character is still You're listening to The Holy Catholic Group, a podcast looking at faith, life, and culture from the perspective of two young Catholics. My name is Lyndon Chan, and I'm an engineering master's student at the University of Toronto. And I am Jeremy Zhao, your co-host, currently a seminarian studying for the Archdiocese of Toronto. In this podcast, we look at different topics each week for contemplative reflections and casual conversations. Trying to brew the things we wish we'd known earlier into the strongest drink allowable for public consumption. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Holy Catholic Brew. I'm Lyndon, and today I'll be doing an episode by myself. Now that it's Easter, I've been reading a lot more into the Old Testament and into Judaism. Frankly, I found it really helpful for me. Hopefully, it'll be enlightening to you as well. And right now, because it's Easter, as we're celebrating Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we actually need to look back into the Old Testament. We had to look back into the first Passover, into the Exodus story. You know, remember that time when Moses brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt? So this episode will be a long one. We'll be doing it in four parts. And next time, we'll be looking into Pentecost, into the time that uh, Moses brought the Israelites to Mount Sinai and received the law of God in the Torah. That's a festival that's celebrated by the Jews, known by uh, the name Shavuot. So here's a little disclaimer. There's no guarantee that anything I say is correct, but what I've taken is from different Catholic writers that I respect, and they tend to say correct things. My main sources are The Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, which is a book written by Dr. Brent Petrie, and The Fourth Cup which was a talk that was given by Dr. Scott Hahn. Both of these really blew my mind, and hopefully they'll blow away yours too. So here goes. Enjoy. Part 1. The People of the Promise So I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but things don't really make sense in the New Testament until you look at the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't really make sense until you look at him as a Jewish man, as someone who comes from an overall broader context of the Jewish faith. If you look at the Old Testament, it can seem very physical. It can seem very brutal sometimes. There's a lot of talk about massacres, of war, of God killing thousands of people for disobeying his commands. And The New Testament seems very spiritual. It talks a lot about having a pure heart, of serving your neighbor. And sometimes it's easy to take the extreme. Sometimes people say, we only need the Old Testament. We only need talk about the strictness of God, of God as um, someone who wants to preserve his nation. And there are also the other extreme of people say, okay, we just need to ignore the Old Testament All that talk about plagues, of starvation, of war and famine, that doesn't belong to us. We believe in Jesus and the church. We just believe in the New Testament. But really, God has revealed the Bible in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament gives light to the New Testament. Without that overall Jewish religious context, the New Testament doesn't really make much sense. And actually, it's easy to 
twist the meaning of the New Testament to fit your own wants. But at the same time, the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament consists of prophecies of progressive revelations by God. And these are never answered properly until you get to the New Testament when Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. So without the Old Testament, the New Testament seems really fluffy. And I think that's a problem that a lot of us have when we read the Bible, because we only focus on the New Testament. It seems that Jesus is only some kind of hippie creature who goes around saying, you know, love your neighbors, love your enemies. And we miss that overall context of that struggle for life and struggling against your enemies, the enemies of God that you find in the Old Testament. And, you know, God really means what he says. He doesn't write the whole Bible just to say some mystical sounding fluff to make us feel good or to confuse us into thinking that there's something meaningful. That's what I used to think. And when you read the Bible in a more thorough way, you can see how it's a story of mankind journeying towards freedom in God. You can see how God is expanding his family, the people that he has entered into a relationship with, and it's continuing in a very logical way. So if you look at the very beginning of the Bible, you see Adam and Eve. God has entered into covenant with man and woman between husband and wife. Then you get to Noah. God has saved Noah's family. So God has entered into a relationship with the human family. And then when you get to Abraham, God has entered a relationship with a tribe, right? The tribe of Abraham. With Moses, you have a nation, the Jewish nation. With David, you have a royal nation, a nation which has become one with a king. And at the Old Testament, it kind of just stops there. There's only the nation of Israel. And what about the nation of Canada? What about the nation of China? There's no real extension of salvation to other nations. And that's why when you look at Jews today, they're focused entirely on Jews. There's no real effort to to convert other people towards what they regard as the true religion. So really, the Old Testament would be really incomplete because you see in multiple parts in the Old Testament that God talks about bringing other nations towards the nation of God, of spreading salvation to the ends of the earth. How would that make sense without the New Testament, right? So you see that there's the definitive fulfillment of God's plan in Jesus. It is in Jesus that you have the assembly of other nations into the people of God. We have the formation of the church. The church in Greek, ecclesia, literally means assembly. There's different nations assembling together, and they become the people of God. And the point of this whole plan of God is that people would worship God, but at the same time, that God would take care of them. In a way, it's like a mutually beneficial relationship. But God doesn't really stand to benefit. He's perfect. He does it because he loves us. He wants us to grow. He wants us to grow in numbers. If you look at Genesis 1, you see that God has already upfront stated what our primary purpose is in life. He tells Adam and Eve, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that crawl on the earth. Just because God loves us doesn't mean that we can just sit around and do nothing. But it's not so much that God really needs us to work and give him sacrifices. He doesn't need us to, to kill animals and offer them, burn them up and send them to him because he's hungry, like what some traditional Chinese religions would, would say. 
it's rather because God wants us to cooperate with Him, kind of like a father wants to teach his, his son how to do things as an adult. Well, it's not that he wants anything from his son that would help him, but it's rather that he wants to teach the son. He wants the son to cooperate with him and give him a little bit of a token of his love. So God enters into a covenant relationship with man throughout the whole Old Testament. And we see this clearest before the time of Moses in his covenant with Abraham. He promises Abraham that he'll make him into a great nation, that his descendants will be as multitudinous as the grains of sand, as all the stars in the sky. Part 2 Exodus from Egypt. If you fast forward thousands of years from the time of Abraham, you see that Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, but he won for himself freedom from slavery, and he brought over his brothers as guests into Egypt because there was a famine in the original land, which was called Canaan. So originally, the Jewish people had been guest people. They had been strangers in the land of Canaan, which later on would become known as Israel. So they stay in Egypt. They multiply and become strong. And the Bible tells us that the Pharaoh becomes very fearful. He thinks that when the Jewish people, they multiply and increase, just as God commanded them to do, that they'll become a political instability. What if these people rise up against me, he says. What if they become more numerous than the Egyptians? Well, then it'll be unstable. Maybe I'll lose my power. So in Exodus, first chapter of Exodus, he says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them to stop their increase. Otherwise, in time of war, they too may join our enemies to fight against us, and so leave the land. So from a position of freedom, uh, the Israelites are reduced to slavery. It means that they have no longer any time or possessions to offer to God because they're burdened by meaningless work that the Pharaoh has put on them. The Pharaoh sends them to build public works. It says in the Bible, so the Egyptians reduced the Israelites to cruel slavery, making life bitter for them with hard labor at mortar and brick and all kinds of field work, cruelly oppressed in all their labor. And because the Israelites are not able to worship God, God sees their oppression. He knows that their primary purpose in life is to worship him and that they will not be satisfied until they can do so. So he appears to Moses, who at that time is a Jewish person, but he had been raised as an Egyptian. So he appears to Moses and tells him to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. Moses is afraid at first. And the Pharaoh doesn't act well, of course. He tells the Egyptians to increase their workload. And the Egyptians accuse the Jewish people, as it says in the fifth chapter of Exodus. Lazy, lazy, that is why you keep saying, let us go and offer sacrifice to the Lord. So you see this interesting thing in the Bible where work is a distraction from worship of God. God created us to love and worship him. So in a sense, we become less human and oppressed. We lose our freedom when we can't fulfill our central purpose in life. 
Don't you feel sometimes that your daily work can distract you from worship of God? Sometimes when you're burdened by assignments, by projects, by tests, that the worship of God seems like a distraction. It seems that, well, we're just being lazy by not studying for our next test. But really, this is the central message of the Exodus. It's that we can only be free when we can worship God. And so God saves the Israelites from the Egyptians. He knows that the Pharaoh will only let them go through a show of force. As if you think way later in the New Testament, as you think back to what Jesus says, that you can only conquer a strong man by being stronger than him. Well, God uses force in order to force the Pharaoh to give up the Israelites. So he sends 10 plagues on the Egyptians to convince them that God is stronger, God is mightier, and that they really shouldn't mess with him. And at the 10th plague, which is the most famous, the Israelites take lambs from the Egyptians, they slaughter each one at their own house, and then they use a hyssop branch and they spread the blood of the lamb on the lintel and the doorposts of each house. In a way, it's like saying it's better for a lamb to die than for the people of God to die. Men and women are above animals in the hierarchy of God. So they roast the lamb, they eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and then the angel of God would pass over the households that night as they were sleeping. And for the households where they had spread the blood on their doorposts and they'd eaten the, the flesh of the lamb, then the angel of God would pass over them. They would be safe that night. But for the households of the Egyptians who hadn't heard of this before, who hadn't spread the, the blood on their doorposts or had eaten of the lamb, or maybe some of the Israelites who had disobeyed God, they would be killed. Their firstborns would all die that day. So when they woke up that morning, there was a huge difference between how God treated the Egyptians and the Israelites. So after that last plague, the Pharaoh realizes, even if he doesn't recognize God, at least he recognizes the signs. He's fearful, so he lets them go. And the Israelites, free, like they flee quickly. They have their loins girt. They had their sandals on and their staff. That's how they ate their Passover meal. So they'll be able to flee quickly. And they wander through the desert for 40 years towards the promised land. And they finally achieve freedom. They, they achieve physical freedom in a land um, that's flowing with milk and honey. Yes, it has material abundance. But more importantly, they have that freedom to worship and sacrifice to their gods. Previously, as slaves, they didn't have any property, so they couldn't offer to God any of their produce. Now they could. And previously, because they were obligated to give uh, their time and their talents towards service to the Pharaoh, they didn't have time to rest. They didn't have time to worship God. And that was the important thing. In the promised land, because they were citizens, in a sense, they were free. They could do the things that God had created them to do. And later on, they received the Torah on Mount Sinai. That's the, that's the story of um, Moses seeing God in the burning bush, of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And this is when the people of Israel receive that spiritual freedom. Um, they receive a code of honor, in a sense, kind of like how um, the knights in the medieval times, they had a, um, 
a code of honor that prevented them from doing dishonorable things because they knew they were above and beyond that. So in the same way, that's what the law of God was. It prevented them from sliding back into slavery of becoming enslaved by paganism. And it gave them freedom by giving them uh, an assurance that they would be worshiping God. Part three, the Passover and the Passion. What you just heard was an excerpt from the Manishtana. It's the first time we've used a non-English song in this podcast. And it's a song for the Passover. It's traditionally sung by the youngest children at the cedar meal, in which the children ask, why is tonight different from all other nights? It's meant to be an educational tool. It's meant to make both old and young reflect on the importance of Passover to the Jewish religion. And in the 2004 film by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ, there's this really interesting scene in which you see Mary waking up in the middle of the night, the night of Holy Thursday. And beside her is sleeping Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of God, she asks Mary Magdalene, why is this night different from all other nights? And Mary Magdalene replies, because once we were slaves, and we're slaves no longer. It's a little bit different from the actual lyrics that Jewish people sing nowadays. Um, but Mel Gibson took these lines from the Jewish Passover liturgy and he paraphrased them. He drew a connection between the Passover of the Jewish people thousands of years ago when they exited slavery in Egypt. And he drew a connection to the passion of Christ that was about to happen in that movie. Both of them were about God granting freedom to his people from slavery, but they're very different kinds of slavery. One was a physical slavery to the Egyptians, and the other one was a slavery to sin and to death. So typically in the time of the Second Temple, um, the Passover had already been institutionalized into um, a recurring liturgy. The purpose of it was to make the, to the Jewish people remember um, what God had done for their ancestors and enable them to be grateful for it. So here's a little overview of how the liturgy would have worked for them back in the time of the Second Temple. We don't know exactly because we don't have many written records of exactly how the liturgy went, but we can assume that a lot of the elements would have been the same today as it were before, only that Nowadays, because the Temple of Jerusalem had been destroyed in 70 AD, and there was really no other way to get a Paschal lamb anymore, the lamb sacrifice, um, those elements were removed. But we can sort of make a little educated guess into what would have happened. So first of all, the Passover lamb had to be set aside on the 10th day of Nisan. So Nisan is one of the uh, months in the Jewish calendar. So it could either be a lamb or a goat, and it was necessarily a male, one year old and without any blemish. On the afternoon of the 14th day of Nisan, the lamb had to be slaughtered at the Temple of Jerusalem. The blood would be sprinkled on the altar, 
the fatty portions were removed and burned on the altar. And then the rest of the lamb was roasted at the homes of, the Jew, uh, of each Jewish family, and they would be eaten on the 15th day of Nisan. Now, the Jewish calendar works by counting the beginning of the day um, right at sunset. So on the 14th day, it would be in the afternoon, and then after the sun had set, each family would take the lamb back from the temple and then eat it with their families. Typically, because all the lambs had to be slaughtered for all Jewish people in the world in the temple of Jerusalem, I mean, it meant that a lot of Jewish people would travel from abroad, come directly to Jerusalem and stay overnight just in order to eat the Passover meal with their families. Now, the lamb was eaten with unleavened bread, which is called matzo. And it was unleavened because uh, the story goes that the Jewish people didn't have time to wait for the uh, to the bread for the bread to rise. Uh, they also ate it with bitter herbs, also known as maror, and that was to symbolize the bitterness of slavery. And the bones of the lamb could not be broken during the roasting or the eating, and nothing was allowed to remain overnight. So nowadays, there's 15 parts to the Passover cedar meal, and that's all we really know for sure how it went. So first, they have the Kiddush blessing, which is the same one that they have as over the Sabbath. They would say the blessing over the wine. They would drink the first cup of wine. Then they would wash their hands without blessing. They would dip the vegetable, known as karpas, in salt water. Then they would break the matzo. They would tell the, the Passover story, recite the four questions, the questions being the ones from the Manishtana. Then they would bless the second cup of wine and drink it. And then they would wash their hands a second time with the blessing. They would give a generic blessing before eating the bread. They would have a specific blessing before eating the matzo. They would eat the maror, which was the bitter herbs. Then they would eat a sandwich of the matzo and the maror. And then they would serve the holiday meal. And then they would have a blessing and eat the afikoman. So the afikoman was a part that was breaking off from the matzo or the unleavened bread from before. And this was used to symbolize the, the absence of the Paschal lamb. So nowadays, because there's no temple, there's no Paschal lamb, they need to replace the Paschal lamb with something. And this was the afikoman. And then after they ate that, they had a blessing after the meal. They blessed the third cup and drank it. And then afterwards, they would recite the Hallel, these being the Psalms number 113 to 118. They would bless the fourth cup, drink it, and open the door for Elijah. And they would say the concluding prayers and sing next year in Jerusalem, which was an anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. So this is how the Passover cedar meal would look like today. But in the time of Jesus, there were certain differences. The major one being that because at the temple, they had the Paschal lamb. So there was no need for any substitutions. And in the time of Jesus, before all of this, in John 6, you see that Jesus mentions himself as the bread of life. He says that their Jewish ancestors had got bread from heaven, the manna, that fed them physically, but didn't give them eternal life, and they had died. So he says, and I quote, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. This is from John 6, 51. And then two sentences later, he says, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat this flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. 
So you see already that Jesus is drawing a parallel between the body and blood of the lamb, and with the manna that God had given to his ancestors, towards his own body and blood. So you can see now that there's parallels between the Passion and the Passover. Later on in the Gospels, you see that the high priest Caiaphas says, "It is better for a single man to die for the freedom of the nation than for the entire nation to be enslaved by the Romans." Caiaphas had saw the political implications of Jesus. He saw that the Romans were very close to enslaving all the Jewish people, just as they had been enslaved by the Egyptians. So, in order to preserve that political freedom, he was willing to kill the Son of God. He didn't even question whether Jesus was from God. All he knew was that he wanted to preserve political freedom, so he's willing to kill God in order to preserve it. And you see how that before. The entire nation would be saved by the death of a lamb. Now Jesus is the new Paschal Lamb, and that year, two thousand years ago, the Sabbath had fell on the same day as the Passover, and Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which was the tenth day of Nisan. Remember, back earlier in this podcast, I said that the tenth day of Nisan was the day that the lambs would be brought into the temple. So Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and There was no lamb present before Jesus, says、uh, Good Friday. So he ate the meal a day early. So instead of eating the Passover meal on the fifteenth day of Nisan, he ate it on the fourteenth day of Nisan. And the cool thing is, this makes total sense from the Christian calendar. Holy Thursday would have occurred on the fourteenth day of Nisan because Good Friday would have been the fifteenth. And then if you count four days back from Thursday, so fourteen, thirteen, twelve. Eleven and ten. So, tenth day of Nisan would have fallen on Palm Sunday. So, you see how Jesus's story drew huge parallels with the Paschal Lamb back from、uh, the Exodus. Now, when the time of the Passover meal or the Last Supper had taken place, Jesus took the matzo, he gave thanks, broke it, and he gave it to his disciples as the Eucharistic bread. He said, "This is my body, which will be given up for you." And after the disciples had eaten the rest of the meal. They drank the third cup, which was the Eucharistic wine. Jesus said, "Take this and drink from this. This is my blood." So he converted the matzo from the Passover meal, and he took the third cup out of the four from the Passover meal, and he converted it into his body and blood. And then, after they had finished eating, they recited the Hallel. Remember those Psalms one thirteen to one eighteen, and very abruptly, the meal kind of was paused. Um, they went out into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus prayed to the Father to take the cup away from him, and there is no drinking of the fourth cup of wine until he's on the cross. And the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they offer him sour wine. So you already see now that there's a lot of similarities between the Jewish Passover and Jesus's Passion. But Jesus takes certain important elements, namely the Paschal Lamb, the bread, and the wine. And he kind of transforms it into his own way. Yes, he does celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, but there is no lamb, and it's on the wrong day. So you see how it's so interesting. The New Testament kind of picks up where the Old Testament left off, and it's kind of the same direction, but it's been transformed. Part four: The New Passover. It should be really obvious now. Jesus is the new lamb, and 
the new Eucharistic meal, his own body and blood is the new Passover. Whereas the people of Israel back in the time of slavery in Egypt had been saved by the body and blood of the lamb. Now all of humanity would be saved by eating the body and blood of Jesus. Instead of an animal giving freedom, physical freedom to the Israelites, now all of humanity would be saved by the death of God. Jesus had replaced the Passover by taking it and transforming it. There was a different day, and there wasn't any lamb anymore. Whereas Passover was a day that the Israelites achieved political freedom, physical freedom to worship God, Good Friday and Easter was a day that all humans had achieved freedom from death. Whereas the Israelites had fallen asleep on the first Passover and woke up to discover that their lives had been saved where all the Egyptian firstborns had died, in Good Friday, everyone went to sleep and woke up on Easter Sunday to realize that the death of Jesus, the death of God, was not the end of the story. They woke up to find that the tomb had been opened, that Jesus had walked out alive. And this gave hope. It gave hope that God was still with the Israelite people, even as they were under the oppression of the Romans, and that their death wasn't the end of the story, that there was life, and that what Jesus had promised would come true, that this eternal life that he purported to give to people wasn't just some fluffy words to make people feel good, but it was actually true, and he demonstrated it himself. Now, even the Passover story wasn't the end for the Israelites. Afterwards, 50 days later, they received spiritual freedom from regressing back to paganism. Now, remember that they didn't have the Mosaic Law back then. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. Now, they knew certain things that were right and wrong. They knew that killing was wrong and so on. But their conception of morality was very primitive. And so God gave them spiritual freedom from regressing back into paganism um, by giving them a new law, a law that was written down into the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And this day would be celebrated in a festival known as Shavuot. Now, the Ten Commandments are really interesting when you look at it this way. It's not so much restrictions on the Israelites' freedom, but it's a set of rules that's meant to preserve their freedom. You hear of things like, do not make graven idols. Well, yes, you're no longer free to make graven idols, but if you have the Lord your God, why would you want to make a graven idol? It's in refusing to do certain things that the Israelites become freer because they learn to rely on God. And similarly, Pentecost, which happened 50 days after Easter, is the day that the Christians received spiritual freedom to worship God in truth. God had promised throughout the Old Testament that no longer would the law be written on slabs of stone, but rather into the heart of every believer. And this was fulfilled in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit dwelt within the hearts of the apostles and gave them an understanding of the new law, the law that Jesus had transformed from the old law. And we'll cover this in a new episode because this is really interesting stuff and it would take a huge amount of time to cover. But keep in mind that after Shavuot, after Pentecost, there's still a journey to be made to the promised land. After Moses had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they still needed to travel through the desert for 40 years into the promised land. And they made lots of mistakes, things like worshiping the golden calf and not wanting to enter the promised land. And even Moses himself, because 
he hadn't led the Israelites so well, he would be punished by God by not being allowed to enter the promised land. He would die before he would enter it. And that's how our situation is today. We're in the age after Pentecost. We've been given a new law that's not written on slabs of stone, but rather into the hearts of every believer. But there's still a journey to be made towards the kingdom of God, which is our spiritual goal, our spiritual home. We still need to journey with God, with the tabernacle through the desert, and fight off enemies of our own. Maybe they might not be Canaanites, they might not be Jebusites, but there are still some very real spiritual enemies that we have to fight. And that's what the spiritual life is, really. So I think we can wrap up this episode now with a few takeaways. I know this was a really long episode, but if you were to take away some key ideas to take with you in your preparations for Easter, for your reflections, and for prayer, I would mention these few things. So firstly, we can really only properly understand Jesus and the Old Testament if you took them in the context of the Old Testament. And at the same time, the Old Testament doesn't really make much sense without the New Testament. It's kind of like a book that has no conclusion, that's just left hanging without an ending if you don't look at the Old Testament with the New Testament. But at the same time, if the New Testament didn't have the Old Testament, it would be very easily twisted towards making it sound like it would justify whatever you thought. The Old Testament speaks a lot about themes of life and death, of physical war, of famine. And this grounds the mentions of those same themes in the New Testament when they're mentioned spiritually. Whenever the New Testament mentions these spiritual themes, it's anchored by the Old Testament. Because when Jesus talks about life and death, he doesn't mean it symbolically or figuratively. He means them really. Whatever Jesus mentions as giving life, it's the exact same life that the Israelites would have faced in Egypt. So the Passover commemorated the passing of Israelites from slavery and oppression because they weren't able to worship and sacrifice to God as God wanted them to. And they attained freedom in the land of Israel because of the sacrifice of an animal. It was better for an animal to die to save humans. And if you fast forward to the time of Jesus, Good Friday and Easter, they commemorate the passing of humanity from slavery and oppression to sin. And they're promised eternal life with God because of the sacrifice of God. It was better for God or a single man to die for the freedom of men. So that was point three. Point four is that Jesus took the familiar elements of unleavened bread and wine from the Passover meal and the Paschal lamb, and he transformed them into his own body and blood so that he could fulfill the prophecies and show us what it means to live a life with God, to live a life without death. So lastly, as a reflection, maybe for this Easter, we should reflect on whether we receive the Eucharist as a matter of life and death, like the Israelites would have seen the body and blood of the Paschal Lamb in the Exodus. Do you really see the body and blood of Christ as something that will save your life and that if you don't receive it, would result in your death? The New Testament is just as real and as visceral as the Old Testament, but sometimes because it's so spiritual, it can seem unreal. 
we really need to look back at the Old Testament and give it a solid grounding to realize what Jesus means when he is the way, the truth, and the life. Happy Easter, everyone, and goodbye. Lend me your hand and we'll conquer them all. But lend me your heart and I'll just let you fall. Lend me your eyes, I can change what you see. But your soul you must keep totally free.